If you would, open your Bibles to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. If you look at verse number 21. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. I think the average person, let alone the average Christian, would find these verses disturbing and and certainly unchristian. Particularly when one considers the verses that come after it. If you look at verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I feel like raising my hand and say, I've seen something offensive. I've found something. I think I've spotted something pretty offensive here. How about I have nothing but hatred for them. If only you would slay the wicked. But perhaps we missed David's point. Because in the verses before what we read as our text today, verse 21 and verse 19, If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. I think that not only does David attack the evil around him, he recognizes that there may in fact be evil within himself. And David wants that dealt with. Why doesn't he do it himself? Well, because he may not see what is wrong with him or what is wrong in him. Self-examination is not a simple matter. The opening verses of the psalm, of Psalm 139, point to the one who knows. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. And as the psalm develops, we see that God is all-seeing, he is all-present, he is all-creative, and he is all-holy. So what are we to make of these harsh words with regard to hate? Well, this is our third Sunday looking at the matter of hate and trying to construct a biblical theology of hate. What we've seen thus far is that we must begin and establish our foundation on the character of God. And last Sunday we examined briefly, there's much more to say, about the matter of God and hate. And among the things that we saw, we saw that it is clear that there are things that God hates. We are told as much in scripture. And by the way, if I don't say it later, there are things we want God to hate. There are certain things that we are very comfortable. In fact, we sort of insist that God hates those things. It's when we get into other areas that then we begin to wonder, why, why is God someone who hates? We are told in scripture that God hates wrongdoing. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and iniquity. God hates hypocrisy and lies. People who live double lives. God hates violence. We see this in Malachi chapter 2. This is just the beginning of of a partial list. The things that God hates. But we should be clear that God hates things and we are glad that he does. Violence against the innocent. Hypocrisy. Those who claim to be his and acting in his name while acting quite differently. Actions and crimes against others. And again, this is but a partial list. But why does he hate these things? Well, God hates those things which violate his standards, which are contrary to his character. God's standards are based on his holiness, and a subset of that is justice. 
those who despise or disregard God's standards may expect that he will in fact oppose them, even hate them. We see this demonstrated and lived out in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. As I mentioned last week, people have often said Jesus acted the way that God would act. Others have suggested we need to turn that around, that God acts the way that Jesus did during his earthly ministry. And what we see in the life of Jesus is that there are certain things that he absolutely did hate, but that hatred was not the only possible response. God has standards. He is holy. And when something violates that, there is anger, there is hatred, but not every time. It is not the only possible response. Otherwise, we would be without hope. We wouldn't be here. Okay. It is God's mercy and his grace that he does not respond only in hatred or in anger against our sin. Last Sunday, we looked at the story Uh, briefly in John chapter 8 of the woman caught in adultery. She was caught in the act. Her guilt is not in question. Jesus knew the law, as did the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who brought her to him. And the law said that she was to be stoned to death. She was condemned to death. But Jesus responds, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And they all left, from the oldest to the youngest. Jesus asks the woman, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She responds, no one, sir. Jesus says to the woman, then neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. So rather than hate, as we hear in the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who obviously set this woman up, where's the man that she was caught with? Um, Rather than hatred, we hear mercy and a call to repentance to a changed life. Jesus doesn't say, hey, it's, it's no big deal. You know, all the all income free, don't worry about it. No, go and sin no more. So this is the radical difference between Jesus and the religious leaders of his time. The matter of hate versus mercy. They could not understand why Jesus would associate with those that they considered worthy only of hate because of the lives they lived. But in Jesus, we see and we hear and we, we see it demonstrated, God's mercy and his grace. Now, building on that foundation, today we will begin to look at humans and hatred. And as I was putting my material together, my notes together, I realized that it was coming into a shape that I hadn't anticipated. I should have because we've seen it quite often. We will look at hate in terms of creation, fall, and redemption. By the way, I'm convinced that this is where most serious conversation should begin. How did God create it? What was his intention in the beginning? How did it get messed up by sin, by the fall? And now through Jesus, how is it being redeemed and transformed in our lives? In that familiar verse in Genesis 1, we hear God saying, Let us make man in our image and our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We are made in the image of God. What that all involves is way, way beyond the, 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 what we are looking at in this particular study. But in terms of our study regarding hate, it means that we have the capacity to hate just as we have the capacity to love. Being made in the image of the creator means that we as creatures carry in miniature form the qualities of the one who made us. 
But we need to be really careful here, and I want to be very careful, because it is clear that hate is not an attribute of God, in the same way that wrath or anger, you know, we don't say God is anger, or God is hate. We do say God is love. So that is his character. But hatred is a response. It is a response to that which has violated his perfect holiness. So hatred is a response, which means God has the capacity for hate. He is a perfect God, but when something comes against it, he's not like, oh, that's, it's, it's no big thing. His response is, in fact, anger, wrath, and even hatred. So when we say we have the capacity to hate, we should recognize that in a perfect world, there would be nothing to hate. But in an imperfect and fallen world, we have almost an automatic response, a reaction to those things that we find offensive. We respond in anger and in hatred. This is a part of what we carry as being made in the image of God. What about the fall? And this is important, but uh, talking to Tom on Friday, we were talking about this, that uh, many Christians begin their conversation with the fall. And that's not the place we begin. We begin with creation. What was God's original intent? And then when we come to the fall, we see how things get really messed up. That the image of God in us, it's still there, but it is marred, it is defective, it is ruined. Meaning that we have the capacity, we have the capability to hate, but we hate badly, we hate wrongly, we hate the wrong things. Among the things the Bible tells us that people hate, they hate peace. Fascinatingly enough, in the first of the Psalms of Ascent, one of these Sundays we hope that Titus will come back to the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 120, verse 6, Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. People also hate knowledge. How long will you simple ones love your simple ways? How long will mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge? It's from Proverbs chapter 1. By the way, simple ones in scripture usually denotes those who have no moral direction and they are inclined to evil. And we find that people amazingly hate that which is good. You who hate good and love evil, Micah writes. In the same way that our loves are disordered and messed up, our hates are as well because of sin. People hate discipline. You hate my discipline and cast my words behind you, from Psalm 50. And amazing, of it, it's just almost overwhelming to imagine that people hate God. The one who made them, the one who sustains them, he's given them life, he allows them to continue living and breathing, and yet they hate God. And so in our text, Psalm 139, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Psalm 68, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. Psalm 81.15, those who hate the Lord would cringe before him and their punishment would last forever. And because people hate God, we find that they also hate God's people. I've mentioned this before when we went through the prayer and Psalms, but the Psalms are full of unsettling talk. 
about enemies. The Psalms primarily focus on the person of God. He is the primary focus. But a close second, interestingly enough, are the enemies of God's people. When I read the Psalms, I find myself being disturbed and rather bothered at all this enemy talk. Um, I think in part because I, I don't think that I have any enemies. Perhaps I do, and I'm, I'm not aware of it, but certainly if, even if I do, they wouldn't be the second most important thing in my prayer life when I'm talking to God. Why is it that the book of Psalms, which is teaching us how to pray, how to be in conversation with God, to be concerned with God, keeps talking about the people who hate us and our enemies? Shouldn't we say, I'm not really worried about those people because I'm in the presence of God, I'm having a conversation with God, I'm a child of God, I shouldn't worry about such things. And because I'm being transformed by the grace of God, should I even think of certain people as enemies? I mean, that almost seems like I've taken several steps back rather than doing what God would have me to do as I grow. One might imagine, and I certainly have at times, that if I am in a life of prayer, that I will get along with everybody and that everybody will love me and I will love everyone around me. Well, when we look at the book of Psalms, we find that, in fact, we who pray have a lot of enemies. And so the Psalms teach us, teach us how to pray for our enemies. We might prefer that it's not this way. Um, I think people would prefer to cut out certain portions of the Psalms because they just seem way too violent and, and hateful, just like our text today here in Psalm 139. We should remember the words of Jesus the last night before his crucifixion. He told his disciples, and therefore us, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Yeah, I don't want to be hated. I want people to like me. Yes, but you should keep in mind that the capacity and the ability for hate has been so messed up because of sin and because of the fall. So much so that people can hate what they should love and love the things that they should hate. In Proverbs 8.36, we have this amazing statement, Wisdom is speaking, All who hate me love death. They hate wisdom, they hate what God has revealed, therefore they love death. Well, that right there should tell us that sin has really done a number on us. It has really transformed, it has changed for the worse, our capacity to love and our capacity to hate. By the way, what does the Bible say about such people? Proverbs 12.1 Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. Um, I know that in certain families, their children are, allowed, are not allowed to say the word stupid. It's a hard word. 
This isn't simply name-calling that we find in Scripture. This is rather saying that the person who in fact hates what God intends for them is really quite foolish and even stupid. The fool is the person who says that there is no God. And the stupid person is the one who hates God's instruction and instead loves that which is wrong. Why is it that people hate what they should not hate? A simple answer, a simplistic answer, would say, well, it's because of the fall. It's because of sin. Our sinful nature, we're all messed up. But a part of this is the fact that we have set ourselves up as judges as to what we should hate and what we should love. It goes back to the serpent. What did the serpent promise Eve? You will be like God, knowing good and evil. You'll be like God. You'll know the things you should hate and the things that you should love. You become the final judge. When God speaks and says otherwise, people don't want to hear it. They just don't want to hear it. And this takes us back to the first sermon in this series. That one of the problems we have when it comes to things like hate, and when we read of God hating in scripture, is that a lot of people think that the Christian God is in fact morally and ethically primitive. And more than that, he is morally inferior to them. That in fact, they know better than God. So, and we looked at this in the first, uh, the first sermon. Um, God is intolerant of differences, say in sexual orientation. Well, other people say, I'm, I'm not intolerant, I'm very tolerant, I'm more tolerant than God and therefore I am superior morally to God. Or that God is vindictive. What's this whole thing about hell and eternal punishment? God seems egotistical and self-centered, wanting people to worship him, demanding things for his own glory. Some people suspect that God is afraid of the truth, that we might find out the truth, that science is the key and he doesn't want us to use that key to open the door. The bottom line is, people would say, who does God think that he is? To limit my freedom and to determine what is right and what is wrong and what I should love and what I should hate. Because we live in this world, we breathe the same air, literally and figuratively, we may in fact harbor such thoughts. That think we think we know And when it comes to the matter of hatred, we would say, I know that I should not hate anything, period. If we are to have a biblical view of hate and its place in our lives, we must humble ourselves and acknowledge that God is God and we are not. In the words of the psalmist in Psalm 100, know that the Lord is God, it is he who made us and not we ourselves. Plus, we need to consider the basis of morality. And we've looked at this, uh, again, in the first sermon. There are three possibilities. As I've mentioned, the first two are wrong. The third one is right. But the first one is that there's good and evil and that they really exist. That somewhere out there, there is this universal standard, which in fact tells us what is right and what is wrong. And that God himself is answerable to the standard. 
So, based on this, God can actually do something that is wrong if he goes against this universal standard. And when it comes to matters of hate, we would say, well, you know, hate is not good, and if God hates, then, then maybe God needs to examine himself in these matters. There's nothing behind God. There's nothing behind God. And so this is wrong. The second possibility is that good and evil are only what God calls them and that he seems to change his mind from time to time. And if you've been reading through with us through scripture, through the Old Testament, there are times when, how come this guy can do this and it's okay and this person do the same thing and it's not? And so we're tempted to think that in fact, good and evil are only what God names them and, and he can change their names at different points. The biblical position is that it is God's character, his being. God doesn't have to sit down and write out these are the things that are right and these are the things that are wrong. God is holy and that which is contrary to him is wrong. And the things that are in line with his character are the things that are right. But we are fallen and we want to be God. What the serpent serpent promised Eve, we want to be true in our lives. We want to be able to determine what is right and what is wrong. Creation, fall, redemption. Obviously something is wrong, and so God sends his son into the world to redeem us. He made us in his, in his image. That image has been terribly marred by the fall. And in Jesus we are being redeemed and remade recreated into the image of the creator and we are to be like our heavenly father meaning we are to hate the things that he hates and we are to love the things that he loves but we need to ask ourselves do we recognize that God is holy and that he is a standard for what is right again I think if we don't if we don't get this part right if we don't get the foundation right then it's a house of cards it's all going to come down we need to acknowledge that God is holy and the standard of what is right. The alternative is that we think we are capable on our own, that we in fact can determine what is right and what is wrong and what we should hate and what we should not hate. And I would argue that oftentimes people with good intentions, God's people who go down that path, come to the conclusion that there is nothing that they should hate. But if we want to be like God, if we want to be godly, May we come to recognize by God's grace and his spirit how we are to respond to various acts, attitudes, policies, institutions, and persons. This is the heart of the matter. And it is, I think, for us, the most difficult aspect. As we will look through scripture in the coming weeks, the Lord willing, we will see when God hated And we will see when his people hated, when our brothers and sisters hated. And by them, may we come to learn what is the correct way for us to hate. That sounds really weird, doesn't it? What is the correct way to hate? How to hate correctly. But if we are to be like our father, there are things he hates. And we should do so as well. But as we saw in the life of Jesus... We should not hate, or should not see hate as the only possible response. 
and by God's grace, may we begin to understand on some level how it is that we are to love our enemies. Jesus taught us this in the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies and bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Yes, we are to love our enemies. Interestingly enough, I would argue in some ways they are still our enemies. Until there is repentance and they change, they are still our enemies. But we can love our enemies precisely because we know they are our enemies. We don't imagine that everybody's our friend and therefore we can just love everyone. There are, in fact, people who hate us and we can respond to them in love. Enemies, especially for those who live a life of faith, is simply a fact of life. This is the way it is. And if we don't know that we have enemies or who they are, then perhaps we live with a dangerous lack of discernment. And I find myself concerned with this as I read through the Psalms. Like, I, everybody loves me. I, I don't have any enemies. I'm a nice guy. Then why do we pray, deliver us from evil? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There should, in fact, be a recognition that there are those who oppose us. Those who hate us. And by God's grace, may we see how it is that we are to respond. By the way, Jesus had enemies, and he loved them, and he prayed for them, and they killed him. It is a reality of life. But in the words of the psalmist, I have nothing but hatred for them. Is that the right attitude? I'm praying by God's grace that in the weeks to come, We'll have a better answer for that. Let's pray together. Father, I confess it it seems strange to stand here in the pulpit to speak of hate and hating correctly. But I suspect that as a result of a really shallow view of love and of your holiness. I don't think it's an easy matter. We would prefer that black and white, love and hate. But as we see in Jesus, hate is not the only possible response to those who hate us, to those who hate you, who hate instruction. We are to be people of love and of mercy, but also people who hate. May we in the days to come, through your word, through your revelation, come to see how it is we are to live our lives as your people. I thank you for bringing us together today on this day that is Mabel's third birthday. And we give thanks for her life. Watch over her. Keep her in good health. Guide Titus and Stacy as they raise her. And we pray for Gia's mom, for Nanai, as she struggles and with her health. Give us strength as we care for her Give us wisdom 
and patience. Above all, may we have a sense of your love. Thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.